evening, Covenant. Welcome. Welcome to the first of two Wednesday evening sessions talking about race and faith. Thank you for coming tonight. My name is Laura Tuma. I'm a member here at Covenant, and the hat that I'm wearing tonight, though you can't see it, is that I am currently the chair of the Discipleship Committee, and we get to work right alongside John Wasson to build up opportunities for discipleship in this community, in this congregation. So we are working hard and diligently to make those opportunities more available. We hope that you will work hard and diligently to take advantage of those opportunities and to see all that God will do through that. I'd like to just mention a couple of other people in the committee who are here as well. Harold Skaggs and Barbara Rogers are also in that committee. Is there anyone else who I've missed? I think that is it. This is an important and, if we do it right, uncomfortable and transformative discussion that we're about to enter into. John is going to lead us through some discussion tonight. James Lee will be here with us next week, and then we will have a pulpit swap uh, a week from Sunday where Thomas, much to his delight, will go preach one service at New Covenant, and James will come and preach three services here, four services, four services here with us. So um, don't tell Thomas I said so, but I think we get the good end of that deal. We get four sermons from, from James Lee. So before we start, would you bow and join me in prayer? Lord God, thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. We come before you as your grateful and humble people. We know that you have blessed us so richly. What we have is from your hand, not from our own doing. Lord, we know we have not done our best with it. We know that we have injured others inadvertently, no doubt, but we know that we can do better. And I pray that each of us will set aside any um, prejudices that we have, prejudices that may make us feel that we are entitled or superior that we will set aside any defensive reactions that we have, that we will simply be open to looking at what your plan is for all of your people. Lord, we ask you to be present with us in this discussion, and we pray that it will be transformative and healing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Laura. So my name is John Wasson. Very soon, I will be the associate pastor of discipleship here. Just very, very soon. Um, so, thank you. It's so nice of you. Uh, I'm really excited for us to have this conversation over the next two weeks um, on race and faith. Uh, I, I hope uh, tonight and uh, as we get into it to share a little bit of my conviction, my passion related to this, this uh, very important uh, topic in the life of the church. But I thought that tonight it would be good be good to begin our conversation by hearing from Christina Cleveland. Christina Cleveland is a social psychologist who teaches at Duke Divinity School. Uh, she also is the faculty, faculty director of Duke University's Center for Reconciliation. She's the author of a wonderful book entitled Disunity in Christ. So if that title's not provocative enough for you to, to read it, I, I highly recommend this book. Um, I hope that, that 
uh, at the end of this, these two weeks of conversation that we will be a community um, that is going to even go deeper into these issues, and uh, this, is, this would be a really good place to start. So to begin our conversation over the next two weeks, I thought we would hear from Christina. She is here via uh, technology tonight. She's not actually here, but this is one advantage of the technological age. So um, listen to this just short clip uh, of Christina kind of setting up uh, and putting this conversation in context for us. You know, we live in this beautifully multicultural world, and even as Andy um, implied this morning, it's wonderful to be so multicultural, but there are also these challenges that are associated with being in this multicultural world. And oftentimes, people who are interested in addressing multicultural issues, building multicultural unity, tend to focus on specific cultural divisions along the lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, political orientation, you name it. And that's a good place to start, but unfortunately, I think we're missing the point when we focus on these specific cultural divisions because it doesn't address the heart of disunity, the underlying fundamental problems that contribute to disunity. And that is that we don't primor primarily identify and categorize people as black or white or rich or poor or gay or straight or liberal or conservative. Rather, we primarily categorize people as us or them. And that is the problem. That is the fundamental, basic problem that contributes to our disunity. And it doesn't stop there. Because once we categorize people as us and them, we automatically start to like us a little bit more than we like them. It's a natural process. A social psychologist named Charles Perdue did a study where he found that if he associated, if he paired nonsense syllables like fake words with, peop, um, with pronouns like our, so um, pronouns like our, then people would like them more than if he paired them with pronouns like their. For no reason. We simply like, it's not logical, but we like things that are associated with us. We like us and all things associated with us. And of course, this has devastating consequences when one group has more power than another, as is so often the case in our unequal world. So how do we go beyond that is the question. One answer is that we intentionally and consciously expand our collective sense of us to include them so it's no longer relevant to even have a them. And when this happens, magical things actually begin to occur. Our stories become their stories and their stories become our stories. When we expand our sense of us to include the other, their problems become our problems, their joys become our joys as well. What if there were no them in the American church? What if there were no them in our US society or in our global community? What if all were simply us? The goal tonight is not for you to leave angry, defenses drawn, or in shame, feeling guilty. The goal for tonight uh, is not for you to think in terms of us versus them. Okay, so this whole conversation is actually about what Christina Cleveland identifies as expanding the collective us. The goal for tonight is for you to leave more curious than when you walked in, perhaps more open to the spirit moving in your life uh, with regards to um, racial reconciliation, and more prepared to listen next week as James Lee joins us and helps us expand 
um, our collective us. Uh, next week, that's kind of what we're going to be doing. It's going to be, be practicing, putting into practice what Christina Cleveland um, urges us to do to, to, to kind of break down these barriers versus, um, of us versus them. Ultimately, the goal uh, tonight for each of us is to consider what this uh, passage of Scripture might mean for our community at Covenant Prez. Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean by this? For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Well, in Christ, a new community is formed. And God's grace in Jesus Christ has broken through these barriers of race, of social class, of gender, these kind of partitions that we typically use to, uh, to block ourselves off from each other. And these partitions usually, ordinarily, foster great, great inequality between people and injustice among individuals and communities. So Jesus Christ, the grace that God offers in Jesus Christ breaks those barriers down. This doesn't mean, I think, that we cease to identify as the people we are, as white, as black, as brown, as male, as female, as Republican, as Democrat. It's not that we cease to identify in some way. We don't want to somehow try to erase uh, the diversity uh, in our community. We, don't, we certainly don't want color blindness. We want to uh, honor the diversity in our community, to recognize that we are a better community because we are diverse. I think what this passage means is that we live with hyphenated identities. Christians live with hyphenated identities. We're citizens of real communities, and these real communities make up who we are. They're a part of our identity. But we're also, if we're Christians, we're also citizens of the city of God. So it's, this is difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to have mixed hyphenated identities. And the trick, the temptation is always to live on one side of the hyphen over the other. That's the temptation, to live on one side of the hyphen or the other. So we live on the hyphen of our political identity or our gender identity or our racial identity. Or we try to erase those identities and only live on the side, the, the, the Christian side, as if that stuff doesn't matter. That, does, that stuff does matter. That identity is very important to who we are and to making up who we are. So we need to resist that temptation to live on one side of that identity. We need to hold up all the different identities and try to coordinate those to this identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God, of the city of God. So one obligation, though, uh, that we have as citizens of both communities, I think, is to reflect upon the way our political community dominates certain individuals in our community and privileges others. We have to reflect upon this. And so this is why I think we must have ongoing conversations about racism. The trick with, with, with something, uh, w with our American culture is that we reach, we reach points where we think that we're done having the conversation. Every generation probably thinks that they've had that conversation. Um, but we have to have these ongoing conversations. These are our conversations to have. And as a church, we need to be in the mix. Um, James Cohn refers to racism as America's original sin. And so, as a Christian community, we have, to, we have to be talking about this. So, I want us to consider these next two weeks as we undertake this conversation, what it would take for, com for Covenant to be a community of reconciliation. What will it take for us to be a community of reconciliation? In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
That is really good news. <laughs> that God is reconciling the world to God's self and not counting our sins against us. Not holding that against us. And then here's, here's an, uh, the, you know, the further good news to the world is that God is also entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So David Bailey, uh, who is a pastor of an intentionally um, diverse community in Virginia, says that it's our reconciling community. So he's interpreting this passage, and he says that our reconciling communities uh, give credibility to the reconciliation between God and humanity. That it's our ability to be a reconciled community that gives the credibility to the fact that God has reconciled the world to God's self. And yet, our churches are perhaps more segregated than the rest of culture. Right? The PCUSA, the denomination to which we belong, is 94% white. Still. So we're part of this tradition. So what will it take to be a community of reconciliation, knowing what we know about our history, knowing what we know about our position in culture? Well, Bailey goes on to say, we'll need three things. We'll need intentionality, we'll need vulnerability, and we'll need confession. So if we're going to be a community of reconciliation, we need intentionality, vulnerability, and confession. So tonight, I thought we'd explore each of these, take them in, in stride. So intentionality. Oh, not yet. Intentionality. Racism is harder than ever to make out. Racism is harder than ever to make out. If we're going to be a community of reconciliation, we have to be intentional about discovering all the ways that racism is hidden within our culture, our social institutions, and unmasking, unmasking that, disrupting that disrupting all the forms that it, it currently exists in 2015. And it will take great intentionality because it's, it's hidden. Last year when Donald Sterling, who was the former owner of the LA Clippers, was recorded making blatantly racist comments to his girlfriend about who she should associate with, he actually asked her not to bring black friends to the games. Um, this, this, uh, and, and also actually came to light that he had intentionally discriminated against people of color in the apartment complexes that he owned and operated. When that came to light, the country responded with, with the kind of horror that we should respond with, right? That that is, that is grotesque. That's the kind of racism that's part of our history that we no longer want associated with, with American life. Or when the SAE fraternity brothers at the University uh, of Oklahoma were recorded singing a song on a bus that revealed deep racist um, commitments. We too scapegoated these two young college boys um, as the racists that they were in our community. We don't want to have anything to do with that kind of racism. Well, in response to these events, uh, the journalist and author Tahanesi Coates, who uh, is one author who I, I, re I highly recommend to you, he's a journalist and author, um, he wrote an article in The Atlantic called This Town Needs a Better Racist in which he drew a very important distinction for us to consider tonight. And that distinction was oafish racism versus elegant racism. <laughs> oafish racism invokes the crudest stereotypes. It's Jim Crow racism. It's crude. It's overt. It's personal prejudice. It's individualized. This is the kind of racism that after the civil rights movement, we have mostly um, identified as, as intolerable, as deplorable, as evil, right? This is the kind of racism that we don't tolerate as a society, and it's very easy to spot. But it also makes it difficult for us to see elegant racism because we pat ourselves on the back for recognizing oafish racism and, tr and getting it away from our society, dismissing it. So elegant racism, Coates says, is invisible. It's supple. It's enduring. It's codified. 
and it's structural. It lives and it hides in our cultural institutions. Elegant racism, Coates says, knows how to injure non-white people without summoning the specter of white guilt. It flourishes, it flourishes on plausible deniability. And perhaps the most important thing about elegant racism for us to understand is that it's not limited to the Klan, to a particular geographic region, to a particular political party. It's collective. It's structural. This is the moment where we get uncomfortable. It includes all of us. We're all involved in some way. And I think this brings us to an important point. Many of us assume that racism is an individual bias, that it's a personal prejudice. It's about who I like or who I don't like, who I walk on the opposite side of the street from. Racism is much bigger than prejudice. And if that's what we get over the next two weeks, I hope that that's what we get. If that's it, that will be a success. That will be, if we can all agree upon that, or if we can all find some sort of common agreement about the nature and the structure of hidden and elegant racism in our society. So racism is a structure, a network of social relations at social, political, economic, and ideological levels that shapes the life chances of various races. That's my argument. That's my thesis. That's what I think racism is. And I think this is really the hardest part for us to, to grasp. Because we like to think we're in control. That, that we like to think even if we're not racist, even if I'm not personally prejudiced, that somehow I'm not involved, that I don't benefit from the history of it or the legacy of it. That's really hard for us to grasp, to, to grasp and to grapple with. Right? This is why we're going to need intentionality, vulnerability, and confession. And courage in the midst of all of that. So here's one example of elegant racism. The wealth gap. So post-2008 crisis, the wealth gap in America grew um, to 20 to 1 between um, whites, and, white, whites and black, white and black families, um, 20 to 1, and among Hispanics, 18 to 1. 20 to 1, 18 to 1. This is the highest it's been since they began tracking this information in 1984. The highest it's been. And what is the major cause for this gap? Well, the biggest reason is gifts from family. It's inheritances. We inherit wealth. We pass it down through our lineages. And uh, the average financial legacy for white families in 2001 was 10 times that of an average black family. 10 times. The primary source of this legacy is home equity. Well, from the 1930s through about the 1960s, people of color across the country were largely cut out of the legitimate home mortgage market through redlining, I'm sure. You've heard about this, a process by which the Federal Housing Administration adopted a system of maps, okay, that rated neighborhoods according to their perceived st stability. On the maps, um, I think I've got a little, a cool laser here. Do I have a cool laser? Yes, I do have a cool laser. On the maps, the green areas were rated A, okay, and uh, these, these uh, areas indicated uh, kind of in demand. They were in demand because they lacked um, and I quote, they lacked foreigners or people of color. Neighborhoods where black people or other immigrant communities lived were rated Ds, and they were stenciled in red. They were considered ineligible fed for federal backing. So they were, uh, they were redlined. This process spread not only from the Federal Housing Administration, but to the entire mortgage industry. And for about 35 years, this was the housing uh, policy in the United States. 
So black families, people of color, were locked out of the greatest mass-based opportunity for wealth accumulation in our country's history. And yet housing discrimination is not only related to wealth inequality, okay? In the words of Coates, housing determines access to transportation, green spaces, decent schools, decent food, decent jobs, and decent services. Housing affects your chances of being robbed and shot, as well as your chances of being stopped and frisked. And housing discrimination is as quiet as it is deadly. It can be pursued through violence and terrorism, but it does not need it. Housing discrimination is hard to detect, hard to prove, and hard to prosecute. Again, it lives and it hides in our institutions where we can't find it. We have to be intentional. Because most of us, most of white, white culture, denies that this exists. That we still are grasping, we're still fighting and grappling with this issue. That it's somehow just located in our past. That's not in our present. That we're not still dealing with the repercussions of it. So we have to be intentional about unmasking this. And this is just one example of the way that I think it's hiding in our institutions, in our way of life. The second thing Bailey says we're going to need is vulnerability. Vulnerability. In order to truly be a reconciling community, we're going to have to embrace vulnerability. And I think this is going to be really challenging for us. There are so few places in our society to actually be vulnerable to actually feel safe enough to be vulnerable. James Baldwin, um, who was writing in the 70s and 80s, wrote a book called The Fire, he wrote a lot of novels, he wrote a book called The Fire Next Time, and in a, in a letter, an open letter to his nephew about what it means to grow up black in America, Baldwin grew up in Harlem, and his nephew was gonna grow up in Harlem as well, he wrote him a letter about essentially how to survive. And uh, I just wanna read a, a section of this. Uh, to kind of paint the picture of what it means for us to truly be vulnerable. He says, there's no reason, well, let me back up. Please try to be clear, dear James, through the storm which rages about your youthful head today, about the reality which lies behind the words acceptance and integration, words that were very popular at that time. There's no reason for you to try to become like white people, and there's no basis whatever for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love, for these innocent people have no other hope. They are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand, and until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They have had to believe for many years and for innumerable reasons that black men are inferior to white men. Many of them, indeed, know better, but as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would be frightened because it is out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's reality. Well, the black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar, and as he moves out of place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. So I think what Baldwin's getting at is how dangerous and threatening it can be to see the truth of racism for what it is, especially if you're used to the power, used to the privilege. 
And it leaves those who have traditionally felt that power and held that power feeling very vulnerable. I don't know if you've had an experience like this or not. For me, it was my first semester of seminary. I was a bundle of nerves. Princeton Seminary is a pressure cooker, and I was feeling it. And I had taken some classes before attending Princeton, and so what that meant was that I was actually able to take higher-level classes when I first started. But what that meant was that I was not in the class that I, I started with. So all the people that I met at orientation, suddenly I wasn't in classes with them. I was in with people who had already been doing this. So I was scared to death. Um, and my policy was don't say anything. Do not open your mouth, do not raise your hand, even if you know the answer, just be quiet. Like, just get through it, see how things work out. Well, if you know me, you know I'm really bad at keeping my mouth shut. And I was in a history class on American Protestantism since Charles Darwin, uh, my first semester, and somehow we got to talking about persecution in the American church, and we were kind of comparing the two. And I just couldn't help myself. So I commented uh, that the American church doesn't really know persecution. I mean, not like the early church. I thought it was a really smart, really astute comment. <laughs> and one of my black colleagues very coolly raised his hand and said, yeah, unless you're black. He wasn't trying to get me. He wasn't trying to shame me. He wasn't trying to call me out. But the minute he said it, it was one of those experiences where the minute he said it, I immediately knew he was right. Immediately knew he was right. I had essentially identified the American church with the white suburban church that really, frankly, doesn't know the kind of persecution that the early church experienced. So I thought that I had a, you know, a really great observation, but what I had done was I had identified the church as white suburban upper middle class. And I had completely neglected to consider the history of black churches which have been terrorized throughout American history. And still are. Safe to say I was in a vulnerable place in this classroom. I had broken my own policy. It's like don't hit on 16. Some of you will get that joke. <clears throat> if you did, we'll have to talk later. Um, by the grace of God, the space felt safe enough for me to actually be vulnerable. And my colleague was actually willing to dialogue with me about it further. And I had the opportunity to develop some key relationships through which IBUS transformed. Um, I was able to listen to, to others' perspectives, and I was able to grow. Um, uh, and I can, I can trace my own passion, uh, my own conviction. I still feel vulnerable. <laughs> uh, but imagine if I didn't embrace that vulnerability. Imagine if I would have avoided the issue so that I would never have to feel like that again, right? Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, and I don't share this story to, to be the hero, right? But to make this point, that unless we're able to be vulnerable, truly vulnerable about this issue, um, we'll remain silent. We won't have the conversation. We won't enter those, those scary dialogues with, with the other. James Cohn, who is a, a theologian at Union Seminary in New York, who is one of the most prominent black theologians of his time, wrote an essay years ago entitled White Silence in the Face of White Supremacy. And what he was trying to do was he was trying to um, provoke white theologians to actually 
consider the topic of, of, of white supremacy. And they had been silent about this issue for too long. In fact, many of the other social, social sciences and humanities had caught on and they were speaking out, but for whatever reason, theologians were quiet. And so he challenged his white colleagues to speak up about the reality of racism. And I think that that essay still applies to white Christians. It doesn't just apply to white theologians. It applies to all of us, all of us followers of Christ. But in that, in that essay, he outlines four reasons why white people often stay silent. I thought we'd just go through them today, tonight. The first is that they don't have to. The first is that they don't have to. Um, the way that the structure of racism in history is set up, white people have had the power. They continue to have most of the power. We don't need to think about it. We don't need to talk about it unless we have some relationship that we're in dialogue or some important relationship with people of color. We're kind of blissfully unaware of our, the color of our own skin. And that's what Cohn challenges us to, to consider, that we don't, we don't have to talk about it. The second reason is guilt and shame, right? Most whites know the horrors of the history of slavery, failed reconstruction and Jim Crow. Most of us know that. And the, fact, the facts are inescapable and they're horrific. And I think this can arouse deep feelings of guilt and shame when we talk about racism. It makes us uncomfortable and overwhelmed, so we choose not to talk about it. We don't want to feel guilty or shameful. Third is uh, anger, that we don't want to make people of color angry, or we don't, better actually, we, we don't know how to control it. We don't know how to, uh, it makes their, their anger, their justified anger makes us uncomfortable. It's not great dinner party conversation. <laughs> after, you know, after we have this conversation, we start to move out into our communities and hopefully have this conversation more. This is not necessarily great dinner party conversation. Um, as Christina Cleveland reminded us, um, or actually Cohen observed something really important first. He says that, that uh, black anger only upsets whites who choose not to identify with black suffering. So if we're going to be people of compassion, uh, building a reconciling community, we have to choose to identify with the suffering of others. And here's what's most important, even and especially when we don't understand it, even and especially when we don't understand it, to have compassion is literally to suffer with, to choose to identify with the pain and suffering of another person. Um, as Christina Cleveland reminded us as we started, we need to expand our collective us. And that's going to take identifying with suffering. The fourth reason, and this one's going to scare, scare us, is that we're not prepared to give up power. This is uncomfortable even for the liberal Democrats who think that they're maybe, you know, further along on this, more progressive. No one wants to give up power. No one gives it up willingly. But as Christians, we know about giving up power. We know we are well acquainted with the cost of discipleship. We serve Jesus Christ, who gave his very life for the world. So we actually are called to give up power, to consider how we might give up some of our power. And I think one way for the church to practice this is that we need to give up the control of running the show. The best way we can give up uh, power is by listening to other people, especially those voices from the margins. I was reading an article actually today about Buffalo, New York, and how it's, uh, you know, the urban center had, had been evacuated 
um, long ago, and it's been struggling. And uh, Governor Como announced, you know, giving a billion dollars to the city to kind of enhance and make it a tech center, and and now it's growing and it's booming. And all of a sudden, white suburban churches are moving back into um, Buffalo and making it their mission field. But they're not talking to the people who have stayed for 30 years. And they're not in dialogue, they're not in conversation with the indigenous folks who have been there, um, helping serve the poor, the people who left. And so, as we consider what it means to be a community of reconciliation at Covenant, who do we need to listen to? We often think of inviting people to the table. Let's flip that. Whose table do we need to be invited to? Um, we don't need to own or control the conversation. In fact, we need to listen more than anything else. Cohen says that one of the best things we can do to dismantle racism is to support the work that people of color are already doing. The, that means their, their books, their articles, their theology, to actually get behind what they're doing um, and to listen. Finally, if we're going to be a, a rec reconciling community, we're going to need to be a community of confession need to be a community of confession. Actually, in our prayer of confession from this past Sunday in worship, we confess this together. You have commanded us to speak, but we have been silent. You have called us to do what is just, but we have been fearful. I tend to think that community, the strongest communities, uh, are built upon mutual sacrifice. I think all communities are like this. Friendships, households, political communities. Mutual sacrifice creates the bonds of strength of strong communities. In our in our relationship with God, the sacrifice of Christ, uh, of Christ creates this new community in which God and humans are counted as friends. Christ suffers loss to rescue us, who have been cut off from a relationship with God, to to bring us home, is how Augustine puts us, to come and get us, to be our way back home. And this is what theologians call atonement. Or, if you want to be cute, at one mint. It's about union. It's about, about bringing together what was, what was severed, what was broken. The reconciliation between humans and God was generated by sacrifice, by a loss suffered for the sake of another because of love. So confession, I think, is a kind of sacrifice. Confession's a kind of sacrifice. It's a kind of suffering loss for the sake of another. From the human side, when we confess uh, we're sacrificing our innocence. We're sacrificing our innocence. We suffer the loss of believing we somehow stand outside the powers uh, of this world that seek to dominate other people. Think of the centurion who stood at the cross. Oh, that's not the centurion. The centurion that stood at the cross in Mark's gospel who confesses as Christ dies truly this man was the son of God. In Luke's gospel, it was truly this man was innocent. So this confession, he is admitting that Christ was innocent and we have, we have killed him. Once he makes this confession about Christ's innocence, he is at the same time condemning himself. His own complicity in the system that killed Christ. This sacrifice and confession generates atonement. At one mint. It brings together strangers and enemies when a sacrifice is made and it is honored with a confession. So how does this help us think about reconciliation between human beings? Well, in this country, 
Those who have sacrificed the most for the purposes of racial reconciliation and atonement at one minute have been people of color. Some have sacrificed their lives. We honor them by remembering their sacrifice. But some continue to, and have in the past, sacrificed by forgiving those who have wronged them or dominated them. Right? If you remember after the Charleston um, killings this summer, immediately the family members forgave um, the shooter. I mean, that tremendous act of forgiveness is a sacrifice that they are making to create a bond um, of citizenship with, with that community. The question is, what do white folks, or predominantly white institutions, have to sacrifice? Well, I think we can begin with the confession. The confession that we are not innocent in this structure, in this system, that we're all caught up in it somehow. We're all involved in it. And we, confess that, we can also confess that we maybe have stayed silent for too long about it and in too many situations. So what do we do after we confess? James Cohn, who I quoted earlier, gives a gift at the end of this long essay talking about white silence. He says, uh, well, how do you go about being a community of reconciliation? How do you go about dismantling racism? The first thing he says is to begin where you are. Begin where you are. Think about all the different places, and we'll, have, we'll do this in a minute. Think of all the different places that you occupy, all the different relationships that you have. The, your, you know, uh, the school board, the session, a small group, a Sunday school class, your family. Think about where you are and begin there. Have a conversation. Read a book. Read an article. Watch a movie. Form a friendship with someone who is different. And then the second is to go at a sustainable pace right? Go at a sustainable pace. Go at a pace that you can go at for the rest of your life. Don't, don't go crazy and then burn out in two years is what he's saying. You don't need to go and make protest signs and go down to the Capitol tonight. Nobody needs to do that, right? Nobody's there. You're right. Or, or for tomorrow, right? So go at a pace that you can sustain. Remember, there's great joy in this work great joy in this work as relationships are formed, as, as reconciliation takes place. It's great joy. Go at a pace that you can experience that joy for the rest of your life. It's a long struggle. Um, so what I want to do now is I want to kind of, I know I've talked a lot, and I know this has been a lot. This is heavy stuff. So I want us to just sit with it. Um, and in our tables, just have a little, a, a short discussion. Um, around maybe just identifying some of the places that you can begin to have conversations about this. I'm, I, I, I'm guessing that you already are. I'm guessing you already are going at this. And if you're not, tonight's a night to identify places that you might be able to, to begin this conversation. And then secondly, to talk about how covenant can practice intentionality, vulnerability, and confession so that we might be a reconciling community. So um, I'm just going to pray over these discussions, and then I'm going to release it to, to you around the tables. You'll find um, some norms that are, that are printed out. 
uh, on each of your tables, like a table menu. And these are the same norms that we used for our Life Together discussions. And they just essentially say that our life together during the study will be enriched if we foster a culture that supports learning through respectful dialogue. Let's all agree to, one, share the conversation, be concise and leave room for others to speak. All right, so don't hog, um, fog, or bog the conversation. Two, share your thoughts in process. This is, a, this is a safe place. Ideas that are not fully formed are valued and welcomed. They're valued and welcomed. Third, speak for yourself. I think, I feel language. Four, disagree. Argue honestly but lovingly. There's no use in not disagreeing if you disagree with someone. And five, be open. The group has a wide range of opinions, commitments, and experiences. So those are the norms. I'm going to just say a quick prayer um, over these discussions, and then I'm going to release you to your tables for about 10, 15 minutes to just talk about this stuff. If you want to talk about something else that, that stuck out to you, uh, great. This is just kind of a starting place. And then after that, I'll gather us back together. Um, we'll sing a little bit, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll be sent out. So let's pray. Gracious God, this is... Um, this is a difficult topic for us, and we're going to need you to be at the center of it. So I ask that we would be aware that you already are at the center of it. You're at the center of our tables. You bind us together. You're the peace that binds us together. We ask that, uh, that you would help us to be a reconciling community, that we would follow you out into the world that you have reconciled to yourself already. God, help us to be an intentional, vulnerable, and confessing community. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.